0: is jennifer stock and you're listening to ocean currents this show is one, once a month where we dive into the big blue ocean and talk with ocean experts to share their expertise about research explorations expeditions policy and stewardship associated with the marine environment especially in our national marine sanctuaries this show is brought to you by the cordell bank national marine sanctuary one of the three contiguous national marine sanctuaries along the central california coast working to conserve these incredible marine ecosystems. So I bring the show to let us all hear a little bit more about what's happening out in the ocean. When I used to live on Catalina Island and I had a very rough job as a marine science teacher at the Catalina Island Marine Institute, we taught a lot of hands-on marine science labs and immersed students in the ocean with snorkeling during the day. Little did I know that when I accepted the job that I'd also be snorkeling at night and with kids. And we get them all suited up with their wetsuits and their fins and these little inky-dinky flashlights that you're not going to see much with. But get them in the water, and most of the time we just do a lot of splashing around, getting comfortable. And then the real action took place when we shut the flashlights off. And what we saw in the water was just incredible. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight is this incredible phenomena that happens in the ocean much more than we know much more than we think we know, it's called bioluminescence. And so many of us see this on the shores here and kayaking and on the beaches. And I've invited Steve Haddock from the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute to come talk about his work and his information about bioluminescence. So thank you, Steve, for joining me today. So a little background on Steve. Steve Haddock is a scientist who specializes in bioluminescence and zooplankton at the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute Institute in Moss Landing. Steve is working on deep-sea gelatinous zooplankton, so soft-bodied animals. His research is on bioluminescence, biodiversity, and ecology of deep-sea and open-ocean tinafores, siphonophores, radiolarians, and medusae, which are all jelly-like organisms that live in the ocean. So in addition to assembling evolutionary relatedness among these groups, He's interested in the cloning of these proteins and these jellies, and what are some of the applications that those could have? His background is a, a bachelor's of science from Harvey Mudd College, and he has a Ph.D. from the University of Santa Barbara, or University of California in Santa Barbara. He also holds an adjunct professorship in the Ocean Sciences Department at the University of California in Santa Cruz, and has an incredibly long list of publications and a fun website, which I hope he shares with us later, for the public. So, thanks so much for coming, Steve. Thanks. I'm
1: looking forward
0: to it. All right. So, I want to just start with some basic terminology. Um, I've read and I've heard many terms, of which I believe was all really meant to be one term, but can you help define and clear up the confusion of these terms of bioluminescence versus fluorescence?
1: Okay. So... Uh, probably starting with bioluminescence, if, if you think of a glow stick, um, which people probably are familiar with, you break this little tube and the two chemicals mix together, and as a result of the chemical reaction, some energy is released, uh, and that energy is released in the form of light, photons of light. So that's, that's chemiluminescence. If you take a similar chemical reaction and you put it inside of an organism, so these chemicals are combining uh, within living cells... Then that's that's what we call bioluminescence. So it's it's a chemical reaction happening inside of an animal. It could be anything from a bacteria up to a, to a fish, uh, and then the result of that chemical reaction is light coming out. So bioluminescence you'll see in complete darkness. Um, there's lots of confusion with with fluorescence, and people sometimes use the terms interchangeably, but fluorescence is actually converting one color of light into into another color. So um, for example, sort of black light posters, sometimes you'll see these posters. they don't always have elvis painted on them, I guess, but you know <laughs> these sort of dark um dark environment, you have one of those black lights or some purpley light shining on it. that's actually stimulating the the fluorescence, and what happens is those photons are being absorbed by pigments, and then they they convert those photons from, say, a purpley color out into a green or a, or a um red color. And the same thing can happen in a lot of biological systems. In fact, laundry detergent is has fluorescent whiteners in it. And um, the way that works is it takes the UV light that you don't usually see and converts it into wavelengths that we can see. So it does make things whiter than white. It makes things brighter than they would be under normal white illumination.
0: So it somewhat bends the light a little bit so you can see those wavelengths?
1: Or it actually it takes the it? energy, the molecules get excited. Electrons in, in, the, in the molecules get bumped up to a higher higher energy level, oh. and they're not stable up there, so they fall back down to where they were before, and then that energy gets re-emitted in the form of light.
0: As light. Okay. So big difference. There's the living light, and then there's this um, change in wavelength and absorbing and mm-hmm. changing of excitement levels. So that's the difference. And I, I think a lot of people, when they say fluorescence, they mean bioluminescence a lot yeah. of times. Um, how about what is the so the actual property of bioluminescence? What is the light a result of? What biological process is the organism doing when putting out this light?
1: Uh, it sort of depends on on the organism. I mean, in a very generic sense, we we call the chemicals that are involved in the bioluminescent processes a luciferin, which is the little molecule that actually emits the light, and then there's a luciferase or a variation on the luciferase called a photoprotein. And those, those are proteins that just accelerate this chemical reaction and actually trigger the light emission from that one small molecule. So you have a little luciferin is the light emitter. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't react with oxygen or do anything under normal conditions. When you add one of these other molecules, it speeds up that reaction. Um, and so the organisms will have cells in their bodies that are generating one or both of these chemicals. And also controlling when they get turned on, and um, start emitting the light.
0: So they have one specific job to do, and that's to create, to react together to create the light. Yeah. So they don't have any other metabolic uh, uses besides the light.
1: Well, some it's, there's speculation that the um, the luciferin part, the little light-emitting part of that, actually has a lot of antioxidant properties, and so it's it's thought to be even more of an antioxidant than vitamin C in some cases. Wow. And so people have theorized that they were around there as sort of a detoxification mechanism and that the light, you know, long, long ago was actually just a byproduct, and then it started being useful, and so it eventually was co-opted. And now you get organisms that have this, you know, photophore that's got lenses on it and filters and reflective surfaces, obviously very specialized for you know that function of bioluminescence, but where where it came from, kind of in an evolutionary sense, we're not really totally sure.
0: That's amazing. So, um, how did you come to studying and bioluminescence, and, and what are you studying right now in your research?
1: Well, I I started out sort of with you know the general layman's interest in this kind of weird magical thing that that some animals can do, but I was fortunate enough to be directed into a graduate program where my advisor was a specialist in this field so within a month of of getting to graduate school in santa barbara i was out on a research ship diving in submarines scuba diving with a ship full of experts on bioluminescence and on and on jellies and so you know there was no going back from from that point
0: they suck you in
1: that's sort of what i've been doing even you know Almost 20 years later.
0: Such a fascinating topic. And so what are some of your primary questions? That are, What have you been working on in regards to this <clears throat> this big field of light?
1: Well, one of the things that sort of strikes you when you when you look at the distribution of bioluminescence in sort of the animal kingdom and sort of the whole um, tree of life is that it just has popped up all over the place. Um, you know, if you look at bacteria, if you look at single-celled sort of amoeba-like organisms, um, and then almost every kind of thing in the ocean, jellyfish, shrimp, squid, fish, um, all these different things make bioluminescence. So that sort of begs the question, first of all, what are all these things doing with it? And then the other side of that question is, how do they do it? How do they get to make this light? Mm -hmm. Um, We see a lot of weird parallels between organisms that aren't necessarily related. So if you take some of these single-celled organisms and some jellyfish and some shrimp, and some fish and look at the luciferin, that light-emitting mole- molecule that I talked about, mm-hmm. some of these things will use all the exact same molecule as their light-producing thing. So how does that come about? How does that happen? So by looking at the genetics of the other side of the equation of the luciferase, we can kind of see how that evolved. Um, so I want to, you know, in, a, in the very broadest sense, figure out how they do it and why they do it you know, and how yeah. it came about.
0: And there's quite a few theories about yeah. why animals bioluminesce. Um, have you witnessed any any interactions out in your observations or out in the field where it would help lend some conclusions?
1: Yeah, some of some of the explanations of bioluminescence are are pretty obvious and, and convincing. The, the angler fish is a classic example. It's got sort of a little lure like a street lamp, you know, with moths flying into it. But in this case, it's it's attracting its prey, um, and so you, you you can see that pretty clearly. There are some suggestions of, of um, well, that's actually some pretty good examples of, of organisms using it to attract mates. So they'll have a very specific signal that says, you know, I'm this species and I'm interested. It's almost like a Morse code of, of dots that they send out. And if, if a member of the opposite sex sees that signal, it'll come over and, and uh, you know, that's how they find, they each, find other. each
0: other. They find
1: each other. A lot of their roles have to do with anti-predation, so the defensive system, either kind of like a bright flash to hopefully scare something away that's about to eat you. But also, um, more subtly, camouflage um, things, especially in the deep sea, um, a lot of animals have eyes that look straight up. And so what are they doing with these eyes? Well, they're they're looking for silhouettes. So if you imagine kind of a plane flying overhead or, you you know, you just hold your hand up against the sky, it's a very obvious dark target against that light background. And so a lot of animals have these photophores, these light-emitting organs. Along their bellies, specifically to make their their um their body disappear against that light background and i've seen example in the lab we had a setup with a fish that did that, and we turned on this diffuse light above it, and I was laying you know underneath the tank, looking up, and the fish just disappeared, literally disappeared. Wow. It was like this magic cloaking device, so oh it it can be really effective.
0: Harry Potter probably studied a little bioluminescence
1: uh-huh.
0: <laughs> how about um Oh, krill! You're just talking about the photophores and mm-hmm. on the belly, and krill is a very abundant, important keystone species in the California current here for so many animals and not a lot of people realize they actually are bioluminescent too. Why are they bioluminescent
1: yeah krill krill are really bright, and if you find one even you know in sort of their their dying gasp if you if you somehow happen to collect one um they'll they'll glow really, really brightly. They have these photophores along their bellies, just, just like I was talking about, and it's thought largely to um, obscure that silhouette, to, mm-hmm. to make that silhouette disappear. But actually, a friend of mine studying krill, they also have little photophores near their eyes hmm. that are shining out, and, and the function of those is, is still not known. Um, another interesting connection with the krill is that the, lucifer- the luciferin, again, that light-emitting molecule that they use, is the same chemical structure as it is in dinoflagellates. And dinoflagellates are these little single-celled phytoplankton that cause red tides and can cause harmful algal blooms along the coast. Mm-hmm. So if you're out kayaking um, at night, probably in the paddle or in your wake, the little sparkles that you see are most likely caused by these things called dinoflagellates. And so strangely, the krill and this little algal-like thing are using the same molecule to produce their light. And so there's a suggestion that actually it, it comes through the diet that the krill get their
2: oh. reserves
1: for making light from what they've been eating.
0: Eating animals that also produce light. Mm. That's interesting. Metabolically, I'm curious if they would, if you know, once they eat something, if it would digest and change the composition of it, but the light yeah, seems the, to retain?
1: The luciferins are, even if you look at a non-bioluminescent organism, something that can't make light, they accumulate a lot of <clears throat> the luciferin in their liver and in some of their body parts. So it's kind of out there in the food chain, and it's available, and we, we think that that's partly... Um, a way to explain how you can get this diverse set of animals that are all using the same one light-emitting molecule.
0: So, what happens when cr- salmon eat krill and humans eat salmon?
1: Uh huh. Well, <laughs> I think by that time the molecules are, are pretty well broken down. Okay. You're much more likely to see salmon bioluminescing if you leave it out on the counter at night. Yeah. Uh, and you can get glowing bacteria that are just out there in the seawater. They'll they'll start glowing on your on your piece of salmon.
0: Interesting. I, I actually read about that It's with other types of bacteria on food and bioluminescing bacteria. Um, I want to just talk about this one anglerfish that mm-hmm. um, usually the lure, there's a, it's a bacteria in the lure that's glowing to attract potential food and, and potential mate. Now, there's one anglerfish that I have read, and I can't remember the name of it. It's a big, the female is much bigger than the male, and the male comes over and... I'm not sure he somehow fuses with the female, and that's how they they breed, but the male just becomes part of the female. Do you know what I'm talking about? So
1: so that's actually not one anglerfish, but pretty much all of the anglerfishes do that. Yeah, so the males are are non-bioluminescent, and they're they're like the size of your big toe compared to the rest of your body, or maybe your hand at the most, um, the males compared to the females. Um, And so... Somehow, once they encounter each other, it's such a special moment. I guess that they, you know, literally bond for life. And the male will will latch on with the mouth to the female, and their their circulatory systems and everything come combined, so that he doesn't eat anymore, and he just becomes this little appendage on on the female.
0: <laughs> I could think of some analogies there, but we won't go there. <sighs> it's just an amazing amazing life history. And you're saying a lot of anglerfish do this. Pretty much all. Pretty of much them.
1: all of them. Yeah. Wow. Do that, yeah.
0: Now, there was also a deep-sea siphonophore that you were talking about. A siphonophore is a long, jelly-like uh, animal.
1: Right. So uh, some of the things that I work on seem really obscure. And, I mean, they probably are because most people don't see them. We use a lot of special techniques in order to be able to study them. And one of those groups of organisms is is this siphonophore, which is sort of like a bunch of jellies chained together along a tube. And... um Anyway, this this siphonophore that we found is a really deep living one, and it sort of turns the tables on fish, and it does an anglerfish-like thing. It has little tiny lures on the end of a transparent stalk, and these lures happen to be attached to right to this battery of stinging cells. So they have like a thousand of uh, little stinging cells that are really painful. I can attest to their uh, potency. Mm. Uh, But then they have this little lure, and inside the lure is a bunch of bioluminescent material. And so they have a little glowing light that they can flick around just like a prey item that, that some little deep-sea fish might be looking at. And instead of just casting out a web and hoping randomly to have a fish run into it, they can actually kind of do something about it and and lure fish in. Um, That's
0: amazing. Prey. This is a gelatinous animal. So it doesn't really have a brain. Yeah. It just has this function on it. That's it's insane.
1: It's I mean, you can sort of piece together maybe how that came about because there's there's actually sort of five species in this one group and we found that all of them seem to have this variations of this lure, but some of them are are sort of more simple than others. So maybe, you know, just having this one little thing that was glowing was enough to cause an advantage and then eventually, you know, wow. it developed this fairly ornate structure.
0: So how are you finding these organisms? How do you? What are some of the methods for going to find some of these gelatinous, creepy? Yeah, animals. They're not creepy.
1: They're beautiful. <laughs> um, they're creepy. Well, but they're beautiful. In the in the shallow waters, we can actually find all kinds of new and, and different and weird stuff just by scuba diving. So we we do what's called blue water diving, and you just go out in the middle of the ocean. You don't really care how deep it is, and usually the deeper the better because it means you're halfway to Hawaii. But we use a series of lines to kind of give you some orientation, some framework to mm-hmm. refer to. And then you just jump in the water off a small boat and you collect things with jars. And so we can get a lot of bioluminescent and fluorescent jellies that way. And these are things that are too fragile to catch with a normal plankton toe. I mean, mm-hmm. I think when most people do marine biology, they throw net in and you get up a lot of neat stuff, but the really fragile things are, it's like trying to, fish a piece of tissue paper or something, even more fragile than a piece of tissue out of the water. So for shallow stuff, scuba diving, we can do it. Then for deeper stuff, um, I'm fortunate enough to work at the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute where we have a couple ROVs, and these are remotely operated vehicles. It's almost like a video game, but it's real. There's sort of a Volkswagen-sized submarine on the end of a tether. Uh, The tether sends power and has fiber optic uh, communication so we can get video images back, and then you control it with a joystick, go out, find animals, and very selectively can can sample and explore the the deep sea. So that's what we Mm -hmm. used to get a lot of our specimens.
0: You also get video footage as well, but some of these clear ones are probably (coughs) really hard to detect on the film.
1: Yeah, the pilots are kind of sick of me because, you know, (laughs) as we got better and better cameras, uh, I can sort of track down smaller and more transparent things, and so... They'll collect something. You have to drive this this VW essentially around a thing the size of a pea or smaller wow. to put it into the sampler. The, you know, you don't necessarily suck it in. You actually move the ROV around the animal. So sometimes when we bring them up to the surface, I like to go show them what they actually collected because it's just so tiny that you That's can barely amazing. even see it when you're holding it you know, in a jar right in front of your face.
0: Incredible. I was just at the Monterey Aquarium recently, and they have a new exhibit that is kind mm-hmm. of like being in the control station for Mbari with the ROV, and they have some There's cool videos. There's a few more
1: blinky lights than, than in real life. That's
0: but what yeah. I thought. It looked a little bit more like outer space. There are but a
1: lot of blinky lights. Though.
0: Yeah. Did there actually, with some of the small ones, you're like, you're mentioning this tiny little pea-sized thing. Do they have some type of a magnifier that you can see it with? How how do you see it's that? It's
1: just the lens on the, so we have high-definition video cameras. Oh, okay. And uh, zoom lenses, and so, you know, once you're fully zoomed in, the whole, screen, the field of view on that screen is maybe about an inch or two inches, you know, of view. So you can actually get really, really nice shots, almost microscopic (laughs) of of things that are down there.
0: Well, it's definitely some of the best instruments I've seen. I I did a tour of the Western Flyer and Mm -hmm. was really impressed by the levels of jobs and everybody, what they do to all work together on these dives. It's amazing. So um, what are some of the different colors of bioluminescence in the ocean? I've seen a lot of the green. Well, Mm -hmm. I think it's green. I'm not sure if it really is or not, but the the, dinoflagellates on the surface, but there's some other colors.
1: Yeah. um, I mean, most of it actually is sort of blue-green, and one weird thing that happens with your eyes is when you're looking at really dim light sources, your rods take over, and your rods are monochromatic, so you'll get a lot of reports of white bioluminescence or things where you just can't quite make out the color, and it's because you're not perceiving the color. You're, You're using these sort of black and white sensors that you have for low light vision but for the most part things in in the ocean put out blue or green light and this this makes sense because that's if they're trying to mask their their silhouette they're trying to match the background light and the background light has been filtered down to this fairly uniform blue blue color blue green color Mm -hmm. and the other thing is that the eyeballs presumably it's it's um targeting some kind of organism's eyeballs, those those eyes and those visual systems have evolved to see that same color of blue light. So it is true that most of the bioluminescence is blue or say from blue to green. There are some weird things that actually make yellow light. There's some worms, and we still don't know really why, that, that make yellow light. And there's a few fish that that make red light that they use as almost like a sniper scope. So they, since most things can't see that red light as far as we know, and this actually, this red light is so... It's almost infrared because if you're looking at it, you know, I've seen these fish bioluminescing. They're flashing in front of my eye and we can see it on a low light camera. You almost can't even see it with your eye because it's just so it's it's so red. Um, But anyway, there's there's a few examples of things that can make red or yellow, but most of them really are are that blue to blue green color.
0: It's interesting. If you think about being in the deep sea and it's just dark all the time, there's a whole different communication system going on amongst the animals down there. And you just think about thinking of these little little, um, like firework shows going on and they all mean something.
1: Yeah. Well, it's it's been described as sort of a bioluminescent minefield, because if you go down, I've done some night dives where you try to go down and, and keep things as undisturbed as possible and use dim red flashlights and you know, or have the lights off and just see how much bioluminescence really goes on. So you get an idea of these few little background sparkles going off and then you move something through the water and all of a sudden everything around you is lighting up. So they're kind of, seems like they're sort of hanging out there and like, you know, when they get disturbed they send off this little shout of light. Um, and the other thing about that is that some of these things are say a millimeter, or less than a millimeter um, so the dinoflagellates, for example, those those red tide phytoplankton little organisms I was talking about, you know, they can be well under a millimeter, and yet they can make a signal that we can see, you know, 20 feet away underwater. Maybe 10 feet, you could see one of these individual cells. So if you think about how powerful that ability to transmit, you know, to communicate, so light is is such a powerful communicator down there in the ocean.
0: Is there a unit of measurement for describing the power of light put off by bioluminescence?
1: There are actually a lot of units, and it gets confusing because when you read in the literature, you know somebody's using microwatts per centimeter squared, and there's actually (laughs) micro-Einsteins and lumens and candle power. So there's a lot of different units that we use to, to sort of describe the kind of amount of light, the number of photons that are that are hitting a certain target. Then mm-hmm. there's also units of like nanometers and angstroms when we talk about the wavelength, which is a way of describing the color. Um, and that's also a way of describing the energy. Uh, if you're talking about flash kinetics, you're just talking about, you know, microseconds. So there's a lot of different ways to quantify the, the light, Yeah.
0: And the light itself is not actually a heat. There's no heat associated with it, right?
1: It's, it's very efficient chemically, so, yeah, it's not like an incandescent bulb where you heat something up until it starts emitting some of that radiation as, as photons. It's actually a chemical reaction, and um, it's, it's, it is really efficient from that point of view.
0: Interesting. We were just talking a lot about a lot of um, bioluminescent organisms like dinoflagellates and soft-bodied organisms but there's actually a lot of bacteria that bioluminesce as well and I was reading about this place called the Milky Sea that you were involved on in somewhat mapping and discovering. Can mm-hmm. you talk about that a little bit?
1: Sure. So bacteria are unique in uh, the bioluminescent realm in that they sort of glow continuously once they've reached a certain accumulation, a certain concentration and as long as there's there's oxygen around but in the ocean, actually, most organisms that are bioluminescent make their own light. They don't use bacteria. Um, they they have their own chemicals, their own luciferins and luciferases that they use. But there are some things that use bacteria. And these bacteria are pretty much all over the place in, in the water. So if you get a piece of crab or something and just let it grow up, there'll be bioluminescent bacteria on there. There's one place where the bacteria seem to sort of go out of control um, at times, depending on the conditions. And this is been known for, for hundreds of years actually it's sort of in the folklore and in the marine folklore and that's what's called a milky sea. And sailors have reported sailing along uh you know, through the water at night, dark night, and all of a sudden they'll feel like they're on top of a cloud or something because the ocean below them is just this milky, uniform, continuous glowing. And it's so it's different again from what if you're in a boat a little sparkling window. Not lake agitated, or something. it's yeah, just it's glowing. Just, so um there was a report that one uh, merchant ship sent in a little mariner's notice thingy and said, you know, we're steaming along and all of a sudden the water was just milky, you know, or surrounding the boat. And they steamed along for six hours in this, you know, large tanker uh, um, ship. And then they reported, well, we left, you know, suddenly we're back in the dark water. And so this friend of mine, Steve Miller, is a satellite oceanographer he does remote sensing of the earth, and he wondered if you could actually see bioluminescence from one of wow. these satellites. That's cool. Nobody really thought that you would be able to do that, but you know, he's sort of undeterred, so he went ahead and, and tried to, to um, search for records. So he got this ship's record where they reported the exact coordinates when they had entered it. And when he went and looked at the satellite data, and we mapped it onto the ship's track, just matched up exactly. You know, along the lines of what they had reported, and so we we were able to capture this milky sea from space, essentially from this satellite in space, peering down on the Earth. Um, it was happening off the coast of Africa, sort of off the Horn of Africa. There, mm-hmm. it was um, 185 miles long. It had the area the size of the state of Connecticut, and so if you sort of superimpose that over California or off the California coast, if you were to drive from San Francisco to Santa Barbara, sort of a six-hour drive. Um, you you would be surrounded by milky seas the
0: entire you know, way the
1: entire way <clears throat> um, and it just would be glowing out both windows as far as you could see so it was like billions of trillions of bacteria that were involved in this so
0: do the, do we know what type of bacteria this is is it regional to that area or um,
1: there's a there's a sort of small subset of bacteria that that we think it could be but no one's actually gotten out there to to really jump in and get a sample. There's been one research ship. Um, this guy Dave Lapota sampled a, a Milky Sea, but they didn't have really good surface samples. And um, so there's there's some candidates that we think it might be, but it's still it's still pretty mysterious. And we're trying to get out there and actually, you know, jump in, sample it, yeah, film it.
0: And a lot of people might think that oh, it might be toxic, but this has actually been ref- it was reported like in 1870 with uh, the book 2,000 Leagues Under the Sea
1: yeah, talking the about 20, something like leagues,
0: that. 20,000 Leagues, yeah. Two, yeah, 20, Leagues. And so it's interesting. It sounds like it's been there for a long time, and I wonder if it varies year to year. Well,
1: on, hap- on average, there's been, you know, only like 200 reports o- of it in in the published record of these sort of Mariners type reports, but 200 records in, you know, maybe 150 or so years. So it's it's pretty much happening annually. And it's almost always in the Indian Ocean Indian where Ocean. it's really warm water. Um, so I think it's conducive to bacterial growth and uh, I think that's why we don't really get them off here, but
0: that's interesting.
1: It will be great someday to, to go and sail through one of those.
0: Wow, that would be really cool. So what are some other um, things that you're working on with bioluminescence right now? you've been You mentioned something earlier about cloning proteins.
1: Yeah, so one of the w- ways that, that you can get at both the mechanism, the sort of chemistry and the evolution, how these things come about, is by looking at the genes that are responsible for for bioluminescence and for fluorescence. And so what we can do is, um, by various means, try to pull out the DNA and figure out um, the underpinnings of, of that luminescence. And you can sort of trace the evolutionary history. You can make trees... Um, phylogenetic tree. So this is like a, a tree of similarity that shows what genes are most similar to each other um, and essentially trace out how bioluminescence might have evolved. So we're trying to clone these genes from a lot of the deep-sea organisms that we have access to and a lot of other um, new new bioluminescent species that we find. Um,
0: are there some <coughs> applications in the biomedical industry for these proteins?
1: Yeah, that's one of the – I mean, it's not really – Necessarily a driver for the researchers, but mm-hmm. um, some of the proteins that were discovered forty or fifty years ago are they're now just ubiquitous in medical industry. every issue of of scientific journal practically has one of these um, proteins being used in it, and the reason that is, is because they have such interesting optical properties that you can take this this little piece of DNA. And put it into the, the system that you're interested in studying. You could be studying cancer. You could be studying how the nervous system develops. You could, you know, be studying almost anything. If you insert this piece of DNA in there, somehow associated with those cells that you're interested in, mm-hmm. you've you've labeled them with this little glowing or fluorescent mm-hmm. marker that you can observe over time in a living organism. You don't have to dissect it out and figure out, well, where was this gene turned on? Where was it turned off? How how did that tumor progress over time or something like that? You can just look at the fluorescence um, in the living organism and track it. So it's it's a really useful tool, and um, as a result, there's, there's interest. You know, we do this sort of basic research, and then other people just take it and run with it and, and make— um, tools out of the genes that you can find
0: for the biomedical industry. Interesting. <clears throat> Do you think there'd ever be a? Well, I guess if once you've cloned the protein, there really wouldn't be a bioprospecting um, worry as far as going to harvest bioluminescent animals. Right. That's, animals, that's right?
1: what's so great about. It. I mean, you used to have to study these things by collecting literally thousands and thousands of jellyfish and and grinding them up, or firefly tails, you know, grinding them up and trying to um, figure out what the chemicals are. Now, if you just take one organism, even a piece, of, you know one little piece of, of tissue, you can get the gene. And then you, once you have that sequence, yeah, then you can study the protein all you want without collecting any more animals.
0: Wow. You just mentioned fireflies, and that brings up, um, I wanted to ask, are there bioluminescent animals in freshwater or some local terrestrial examples of bioluminescence?
1: Um, well, we don't get fireflies out here, unfortunately, but actually you can see um, there's bioluminescent fungus, That that you can see in sort of old rotting wood and I've seen you know some firewood in the fireplace and going down to get a log (laughs) out and it's like glowing with this sort of purpley blue glow Um, it's called foxfire and that's caused by um, bioluminescent fungus that you can find off here also kind of in the leaf litter hiking um, I've seen bioluminescent millipedes so yeah it's really strange why they would be why they would be luminescent, but there's actually some millipedes that are luminescent.
0: So how do you do that? Hiking in the dark. I guess you're taking some very careful steps and you're really looking for this.
1: <laughs> I was going to the bathroom
0: at the Oh, okay. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess around here we have tons of duff and tons of old trees and mm-hmm. decaying. We have a lot of mushrooms out here in West Marin, so probably have a lot of glowing fungus too.
1: I would think so. So usually the mushroom itself, once you see, is not the the luminescent part. There are some, but I don't think we get those around here as much. But yeah. it's it's sort of the um the part that's just developing on the wood so if you if you look at it in the light you don't see it it's just a a very transparent film
0: interesting now what about freshwater ecosystems are there bioluminescent animals in freshwater ecosystems
1: there's really very few there's some insect larvae that that are found in freshwater um and then there's in new zealand there's like this freshwater limpet which is a little type of um shelled snail Mm -hmm. and uh other than that it's really it's really taken off in the ocean. I mean if you look in especially in the deep sea, it's kind of cliche but it really is is true to say that it's if you pull something out of the trawl it's much more likely to be bioluminescent than not. It's a lot easier to name the few things that are not
0: bioluminescent
1: wow. than to go through and name everything that is bioluminescent.
0: Yeah, on your website and we'll give out the name of that website um in a little bit but you list all these different animals that are bioluminescent and i knew a couple of them but there was it was a much longer list than i expected there was nudibranchs um, some octopus sharks yeah what sharks are bioluminescent
1: there are some um, deep sea sharks that are sort of like dogfish it's a it's a small couple foot long little shark called Mm -hmm. the cookie cutter shark is one prominent example and um, those guys are actually an interesting case they have a mouth that's shaped like a little circular cookie cutter, uh-huh. and they take little chunks out of like dolphins and tuna. So they're like these little sharks, and um, Edie Witter actually hypothesized that they're using their bioluminescence as a way to trick the fish. So we talked about counter-illumination before, this right. obliterate your silhouette. Well, these guys have a little dark stripe along the bottom that's not perfectly counter so their shadow looks like a little fish. And the thought is that a larger fish comes up and says, oh, there's a, there's one of my prey items, goes and swims up, and the cookie-cutter shark takes a little nip <laughs> and swims off.
0: <laughs> so cookie-cutter sharks, they're kind of just snackers with other animals, yep. right? They're not really big-time. They wouldn't eat another animal. They just kind of snack on them a little they, bit.
1: They seem to take plugs out of, out of much, <laughs> larger, much larger animals, yeah.
0: Cool. With Steve Haddock, who is an expert in bioluminescence, let's talk a little bit about some of the biodiversity of some of these deep water animals. What do, what are how diverse? How many different types of animals are in the deep sea? We don't
1: we don't really even know how many are down there. Um, I, one thing that's kind of interesting to me is how people are just they're fascinated with. the the, every new species you know there's like newspaper releases on oh scientists discover new species of something and it's weird because you get almost jaded with the amount of of new and undescribed it's almost frustrating sometimes when you're looking at the deep sea and especially at these fragile things you almost don't want to find a new one because it just means more work for you down the road (laughs) um but yeah so many of these these jellies and things like that and and i also actually i like to call them undescribed species as opposed to new species because they're really not new you know they're they've been around for millions of years they're they're basically new to us um and we just haven't kind of cataloged them in our little organizational system yet um
0: oh we got a caller all right hello you're live on the air
2: Hi, I have a question uh, about bioluminescence.
0: All right, thanks for calling in.
2: Well, um, I was on a, a scuba dive recently in Indonesia and uh, had a very interesting experience. We were on a night dive, turned off the lights, so lots of little sparks, which is normal. But every so often we'd get a big um, blob that would appear about the size of a cantaloupe, and it would um, persist for about a minute. And the really weird thing is if you turned the light on and looked at it, there was nothing there, at least that you could see, and if you put your hand there, there was nothing there either. Uh, we later figured out that what they were were epitokes, which is the reproductive segment of marine worms that break off from the marine worms and come up and um, burst with gametes, uh, eggs and sperm, um, and I guess what was going on was the eggs and sperm were bioluminescent. So why would that be? That's a very strange thing.
1: Well, actually, so those those polychaetes that, that you were lucky enough to see, I've seen them in the Caribbean, but not not down in the South Pacific. Um, they do what I was talking about before with the, the ostracods or these little shrimp that send out sort of the Morse code signals. The um, the polychaetes, these little worms actually have sort of another mating dance that they do where I actually can't remember if it's the male or the female, but basically the, the female hangs out in the water column and the male swims around it and um, puts out this bioluminescent material into the water. So, because you know you said you couldn't really see it with the lights on afterwards but I think it could have been that exudate that they were putting out so the actual sperm and the eggs you know technically aren't the things that are probably luminescing at the time but they happen to be there in the water at the same time that they're putting out these these bioluminescent chemicals and so their displays are tied with the lunar cycle and so you get these swarms at certain times and the natives actually have the the islanders have a uh, Ceremonies that involve catching a whole bunch of these things and, and actually eating them oh
2: my um, God. at the time
1: that, that those worms do their bloom. So that's pretty great that you were able to see that.
2: I have heard that they eat them in, in Fiji. But I do know the interesting thing to me is that the epitoke is, well, it's more brainless than a, yeah. than a polychaete worm and I guess is off on its own. Um, and I know that they, they're they supposed to explode at some point or yep. at least open up. Um, so I'm curious how, if they don't have the th- the thinking part of the worm in them they can react to light
1: well i think the I think the other half of the equation does still have its faculties more or less intact mm, okay um but yeah there's actually there there's some things like that where especially with the jellyfish it's like these things have fairly elaborate bioluminescent mechanisms and no way to really see it so um but I think your case where where it's a mating. A mating situation is a little bit different. So. Ah, okay, it's, so it's
2: a way to bring them together. Thank you very much. That's
1: neat. Thanks, Thanks
0: for calling. Great question. <coughs> we still have a few minutes left if anybody else wants to call in. Uh, again, the number is four one five six six three eight four nine two, or you can try four one five six six three eight three one seven and ask a question about bioluminescence.
1: Is there one thing ahead? I wanted to mention um, that people could actually try? Um, Because, you know, we use some fairly specialized equipment in our lab in order to to low-light cameras to record the bioluminescence or special filters and lights in order to see the fluorescence. But um, if people want to do, like, class projects, I often get emails from people. You can actually order bioluminescent bacteria. You can order bioluminescent um, dinoflagellates, those little phytoplankton, um, from various either sort of uh, semi-almost industrial, like, educational supply houses. Mm -hmm. Um, so if you do a, a little bit of a web search on on bioluminescent bacteria, you might look for photobacterium, or you might just look for dinoflagellates. And there's a couple different places that that will sell you a little batch. And I um, I've tested them out, both of them, and they're really great. You get like this little glowing tube of of bacteria, or a little glowing bag of wow. of dinoflagellates.
0: One thing, one way I've used to <clears throat> just demonstrate that it's a chemical reaction and this isn't great because it's a it's a wasteful use of a glow stick. It's plastic mm-hmm. and glass, and then you have to throw it away. So I'm not a big fan of that. But the way those things work is there's that little glass tube inside that you crack open, and if you um, cut off the top of the glow stick and pour everything out into one Petri dish and then take out that, that little glass tube, put that in a separate one, then you can actually mix them and, and show how it produces light. It's a way to demonstrate the chemical mm-hmm. reaction, but I think the the bacteria would be really that's much cool. more applicating, applicable to the classrooms.
1: Another thing that's um, a way to see fluorescence is we, we just use, you have to have a sort of a short wavelength light to excite it, and then you want to block that light out and look at the longer wavelengths in order to detect it. And so I have on my keychain just one of those little blue LED flashlights that I carry around everywhere. Um, and if you get one of those, that's a pretty good excitation source. So then you just need a piece of yellow cellophane, could be, you know, a bread bag an old bread bag or something or even some yellow goggles a lot of the sunglasses um, today you can buy are just yellow yellow filters and you can go out and see a lot of fluorescence Um, you can look in your cupboard the mustard is probably going to be fluorescent you can check your cheez-its are probably fluorescent Um, there's well in the case of the mustard chlorophyll the the molecule that um, plants use to absorb light is also fluorescent so if you shine this light on a leaf and use your little filter; it's going to look um, bright red to you because it's fluorescing. That chlorophyll that makes it look green in in the light is actually fluorescing and looking red. So if you if you get together your little fluorescence kit, um, you can sort of have some fun in the. I
0: I just have this image of you walking around in all these random areas with interesting goggles and filters on your flashlights. And is that pretty accurate for you? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you. Were, you were talking earlier about. Getting down to this level of DNA and proteins, and you know there's the whole collection which you are talking about. you get to samples and jars, but then you have this these uh, organisms, but how do you get all the way down to that molecular level? What instruments do you use and techniques to get to that level?
1: Um, I mean, we use sort of normal genetic genetic tools it's kind of like the same way that the f- bioluminescent and fluorescent proteins that that we can pull out of the deep sea end up being used in a normal biomedical lab somewhere in the, you know, um, in in industry, we can take the industrial tools and just apply them to our deep sea questions. So all you really need is a little frozen piece of tissue to start out with. Um, You grind it up and and do some things again that you can sort of do in your kitchen if you have an advanced kitchen um, to pull the DNA out. And then um, from there, we use little tricks to amplify up the the portion of that of of interest and, uh, you know, sequence it and study it from there
0: interesting interesting tools we have another caller thanks for calling you're live on the air
2: I have a question about the vertebrates the larger critters that bioluminesce and how many of those make their own bioluminescent material and how many of those are ones that are harboring or Mm -hmm. um, growing or cultivating other critters that bioluminesce inside of them to do the work for them
1: sure that's a good question um, so the bioluminescent vertebrates are pretty much fish, um, you know, sharks, sharks and fish, bony fish and, and um, birds, and, and none of the other things have, has anybody found that has bioluminescence. And within the fish, they have a bunch of different ways that they can go about making light. So the anglerfish, of course, has a classic example of, of bacteria. There's other fish that have really cool little bacterial cultures near the bottom. And then they have like a reflective light pipe that goes all along their belly that takes the light from that bacterial culture and t- uses it as a counter-illumination signal, like a camouflage signal that I was talking about. Um, so there are a bunch of fish that use bacteria. Then there's, um, I think most of the fish, though, use one or the other of these luciferin-luciferase reactions that we talked about. Um, and even within that, there's a couple different chemistries. So if you try to add up, how many times bioluminescence has evolved, it gets a little bit tricky because you say, well okay, it evolved in fish, but then if you think, well, it actually probably evolved in fish like four or five times because some of them use bacteria, some of them use one luciferin, some of them use use another so probably the most most of them are actually either making their own luciferin or getting it from their diet There's one good example, and I think in Sausalito they had a problem with this midshipman fish, which is a it's like a singing fish, and the people in the boats had these mysterious alien noises, yeah. um, and it actually ended up being from this toadfish. Well, that guy has photophores all along the bottom. And in the northern populations, like up in Washington, they're not bioluminescent, but down here and down towards um, Santa Barbara, they're brightly bioluminescent. And what it has to do with is that they have to get that from an organism in their diet. So they are actually getting the chemicals from their diet. So almost every little variation that you can think of, they're they're able to do.
2: Thank you.
0: Cool. So we're just running out of time here. And Steve, this has been so interesting, fascinating. I feel like we just touched the surface of bioluminescence. And there's probably so many more questions that we have. We might have to co- have you come back sometime. Do you, uh, you want to share the website that you have? That There's some really I mean- cool photos on there.
1: Yeah, if you just Google bioluminescence, you don't even have to spell it right. Um, (laughs) Hopefully, if it's still uh, up there, the first link that you get should be this thing called the bioluminescence webpage, which um, I set up when I was at Santa Barbara. And um, it has a lot of information, some of the stuff we talked about and some other things on it. So you can also Google bioluminescence.
0: Or Google Stephen Haddock, H A D D O C K. And I. it's very much that's how exactly I found a little bit more about bioluminescence in your work was by Googling those two things. So the Internet is an incredible resource. There's a couple of different bioluminescence web pages, and you can learn how to correctly spell it, too, yeah. in case you're ever in a spelling bee. But thank you again for coming all the way up here today. It was great having you. I think tonight's show, just hearing about the diversity of animals that produce this light—from bacteria to squid to some fishes, even vertebrates and fishes and sharks, including land bioluminescent organisms like fungi and, and lichens—it just really displays how interconnected our our world is in regards to um, things feeding on each other and how they depend on each other and how they've evolved and especially in the ocean, so Steve has really helped illustrate that tonight with just the one topic of bioluminescence, so thanks for joining us tonight on Ocean Currents.